And it is time for the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, back in the studio after a couple of weeks away. Today on the show, part one of a two-part series, Black Holes. They're even weirder than you think. We're going to feature conversations with a couple of leading physicists on the time, space, and mind-bending phenomena of black holes, why they matter, and what they do to matter. That is coming right up. Support for the 7th Avenue Project is from the Capitola Book Cafe. Mark Zaifman discusses Your Money or Your Life, Nine Steps to Transforming Your Relationship with Money and Achieving Financial Independence, Tuesday, January 6th at 7.30 at Capitola Book Cafe. Details at 462-4415. And before we get on with today's show, a note on last week's broadcast. I was on holiday And I'm told our automated playback system, which I put my faith in, failed us. So uh, you listeners who tuned into my interview with philosopher Anthony Appia, well, you were treated to a half hour of silence. I hope you used it productively for self-reflection, followed by the truncated second half of the interview. Ouch. Um, If I get the opportunity in the next couple of weeks, I'll rebroadcast the entire interview the way it should have been broadcast the first time around. And now on with today's show on black holes. Speaking of which, I have a confession here. I've always been just a little skeptical of the um, seemingly disproportionate public attention given to these astronomical beasties. I mean, there's a lot of astonishing stuff out there in space, but um, we have this morbid fascination with black holes, it seemed to me, just the way we humans are always preoccupied with things that uh, can destroy us. And that's why, for instance, we're more obsessed with great white sharks than, say, yeast cells, even though the latter are a lot more important in our daily lives. So in the same way, we fixate on these fearsome-sounding gravitational sinkholes in space that would tear you six ways till Sunday if you fell into them. But come on, you know, the late, the nearest one is maybe 6,000 light years away at the closest. You're not going to fall into them. They're anomalies, and there's far more important bread-and-butter astronomy to be done. Well, it turns out I was underestimating black holes. Serious cosmologists are just as taken with them as the average sci-fi geek, and that's because black holes put some of our most basic ideas to the test. And just pondering them has forced scientists to rethink some of physics' fundamental principles. Well, we on the 7th Avenue Project are going to spend the next two weeks talking to physicists about black holes. In part one today, we're going to learn some black hole basics from Brian Greene. And next week, we'll hear from another theoretical physicist, Leonard Susskind, about some of the strangest problems posed by black holes and how these questions touched off an intellectual battle royal between Susskind and his allies on one hand and Stephen Hawking on the other hand. Um, First up, though, Brian Green. He's a professor of physics at Columbia University. In the physics uh, universe, he's known for his work on string theory, the idea that reality at the tiniest scales consists of little strings of vibrating energy. More broadly, Brian Greene is known as one of the great public teachers of physics. He's author of the best-selling books, The Elegant Universe and The Fabric of the Cosmos. His latest book is a children's story. It's called Icarus at the Edge of Time, and it's about, you guessed it, black holes. Here's the interview. Brian, welcome. Thank you. 
Why are you physicists so interested in black holes? I mean, they're this kind of exotic oddity way out there in space. Why so much attention to, to black holes? Well, we've learned that the way you make the most dramatic progress in physics and in science more generally is to push your understanding to the very limit. When you push it to the limit, it may break. And if it breaks, that's the opportunity to find out what new true idea takes over. Black holes are pushing things to the limit. They're the most extreme form of matter where matter has been crushed to, you know, fantastically high densities. And, for instance, the astrophysical black holes that we know now to exist in the universe. So if we can understand them, we feel confident that we've really understood the universe deeply. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, we can't see black holes. We can see their effects on the things around them, right? That's correct. Yeah. We can see matter being sucked into them. We can see the absence of light coming from some region of space. and That's an indication that they're there. That's right. In all this work by physicists that's been done on black holes over the last 20, 30 years, is it all essentially thought experiments and math, or is it based on actual empirical evidence? Well, the, the most insightful work that has tried to understand the nature of space and time when it comes to black holes have certainly all been highly theoretical. We don't have the luxury of a black hole right here that we could play with, bounce around, sort of really tweak it and push it and see what happens. So from that perspective, all of the experiments, in quotes, have been thought experiments. But I wouldn't want to de-emphasize the fact that what has changed in the last few decades is now we're really quite confident that black holes are real, that this isn't just a mind game. You know, in the center of our galaxy, 26,000 light years away, there's really compelling evidence that there's a black hole that weighs a gargantuan three million times as much as the sun. So these are real things. You need to understand them because they're part of the universe and they can teach you a lot about space and time. But when a physicist like, say, Stephen Hawking does his work on black holes or... Hawking radiation, as it's described, coming from black holes. That's not based on new astronomical data that he's collecting and processing. It's more the idea of a black hole that he's working Th- with. That's completely right. So all of Hawking's work, the work that really got him famous for the first time, was totally a thought experiment. Put together the laws of gravity and the laws of quantum mechanics in a uneasy union, but one that was understood well enough to extract some predictions, and he came to a surprising conclusion that black holes are not completely black, that quantum physics allows a certain amount of radiation to leak out through the surface, and therefore quantum physics tells us that the classical notion that black holes hold on to everything is not completely true. Mm -hmm. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about what a black hole is? Uh, when I hear them described, I imagine a lump of dense matter, some kind of black rock-like thing that has an intense gravitational field that's very small and, and very scary if you get too close to it. That's, I think, what most of, most of us envision. It's not a bad picture to have in mind. In fact, people thought about black holes even before Einstein. You know, Back in the 1700s, people asked themselves the very simple question, you know, we stand on the surface of the Earth and we throw something up, And it goes up for a while, and then it slows down, and it comes back. If we throw it harder, it goes up further. They ask, well, if I throw it hard enough, it'll leave the Earth. It'll escape if I throw it at what's known as escape velocity. And they said to themselves, what if we had another astronomical body whose gravity was so powerful that the escape velocity was equal to the speed of light? Then when you turn on a flashlight, even the light won't escape 
because it won't have adequate speed. And therefore, the object will look dark. It'll be a dark star, what has come to be called a black hole. And that's not a bad image to have in mind. A black hole is an object where the escape velocity is equal to the speed of light. And once Einstein comes on the scene and tells us nothing can go faster than the speed of light, once the escape velocity is the speed of light, that's it. Nothing can escape. Mm -hmm, mm. But there's another side of it that doesn't get as much airtime that perhaps is a little bit confusing. We always describe black holes, I do too, as these very, very dense, very, very massive, dense objects. But if you had a, a box of air and you made that box sufficiently large, it would become a black hole. It doesn't have to be dense. It's just a ratio of how much mass you have in there to the linear size of the object. So if you make the linear size of that box of gas bigger and bigger and bigger, then it turns out, strangely enough, it would be a black hole with the density of air. You're saying if there were enough air molecules with enough mass that they would start pulling each other together and continue collapsing until you had a black hole. Yeah, and I would even say it's a little bit different. If you're looking even just purely from the outside, the gravitational pull of this box of air would be ultimately so powerful that, you know, if you got too close to it, you wouldn't be able to escape, even though it's a box of air. Really? Very strange idea. Well, this is a really strange idea because I would think that, say, a galaxy has a whole lot more mass than this box of air you're talking well, about. Well, it'd be a pretty darn big box of air. <laughs> 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 well, well, uh, you know, it's funny. Now you're provoking me because um, this box of air you're saying wouldn't even have to collapse on itself. It wouldn't even have to become super dense matter. Well, it ultimately would. So okay. once you cross the threshold where it would become a black hole, then indeed the image that you had in mind of things being crushed together at a quote-unquote singularity at the center, all of that would come back into play. But, you know, a hair's breadth before that just before you've reached that stage, it wouldn't have to collapse in on itself, and it would be this box of air. I mean, there is, you know, subtleties associated with this. There's something called the genes instability, which is if you have a sufficiently large amount of anything, it begins to pull on itself, and it will collapse in, and, and certainly that would happen. But the idea is the notion that things are incredibly dense is almost right, but not quite right because what black holes really care about is not the mass necessarily per unit volume but the mass per unit length and that's the difference that makes the story a little bit more subtle when you say length you mean radius yeah radius so for instance if it's spherical the if you don't mind talking some, which i never do in this setting but if you want to talk a touch math for just a second mm -hmm, yeah um the operative thing to look at is the ratio of the mass of this spherical object to its radius, not to its radius cubed, not uh -huh. to its volume. Uh -huh. And that's what makes this a little bit a little bit more subtle. So for instance, if the object has constant density, then its mass is its density times r cubed. Then the ratio of the mass to the radius is the density times r cubed to r, which is the density times r squared. Mm -hmm. And that number gets bigger and bigger and bigger mm -hmm. if r gets bigger, even at constant density. Now, I think I'm jumping the gun here, uh, but uh, is this the same reason then that, say, the entropy is proportional to the surface area of the uh, black hole horizon rather than the, uh, the cubic volume of the, the, the black hole? It, 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 certainly part of the same mathematics yields that conclusion. But um, I don't think that would be the most insightful way to get to, to that way of thinking about things. But it is the case that, you know, it's this bizarre but wonderful feature of black holes that the information that they store or the lack of information, which is captured by this notion of entropy, 
is not given by what you'd think. You'd think that, you know, the amount of information in object stores depends on how big the volume is. That's where you store the information, after all. But for a black hole, in fact, anything more generally, the information actually, the maximal information content is dependent upon the area of its surface. It's just a strange idea. Well, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit um, later, but uh, I want to go back to our sort of very elementary description of a black hole. So you've got a lot of matter packed into a relatively small radius, right? Yep. And that results in this, you know, this, this very, very compact object. Yes. What, describe this object for us. Well, I wish I could. Uh, I can't do it completely, and nobody can, so I don't feel too bad about it. But the things that we can talk about are, we know that it has what we call an event horizon, which is a place away from the center of this object, such that if you cross that location, there's no way for you to escape. There's no way for you to get out. Now, usually we describe that in terms of the gravity is so strong, it won't let you go. Mm -hmm. There's another way of thinking about it that I think is more insightful, which is you know, best described with an analogy. If you're a kayaker and you are kayaking down a river, you're making progress, all is well. But then if the current starts to go against you, you don't make as much progress. You're paddling as fast as you can, but the current is drawing you back. At some point, if the current is going as fast as you can paddle or faster, you'll make no headway. Mm -hmm. Very simple idea. That actually works, that analogy works for black holes in the following way. Rather than water, think about the flow of space. It's a strange idea. But Einstein's math shows us, in essence, that space can flow like the water. And if it's not flowing too fast, you can still make headway against it. You can make progress. But right at the edge of a black hole, at the event horizon, the speed of space falling over the edge equals the speed of light. And at that point, you can't make any progress because you can't go faster than the speed of light. Space is pulling you back at a speed equal to the speed of light. No way for you to make progress. You're stuck. So, so a certain distance away from the center of a black hole, we have this event horizon, the point of no return, the brink, you know, the cliff that you, you could fall over and never come back from. Uh, but what's, a, what's down there deeper in the black hole? Well, what's deeper in the black hole is something that we call a singularity, which is a fancy name that physicists use when they don't want to say the longer phrase, we don't know what is going on. And that's all is happening. What really mean is that the mathematics that Einstein gives us works very well until you get right to the center. Then the math goes haywire. And it goes haywire in the following way. It says that the densities become infinite. And what does infinite mean? There's nothing in the world that we really think of as being infinite. And certainly in this setting, it's something that we suspect means that the math is simply breaking down. Mm -hmm. It's not really telling you what's going on. So, you know, if you were to go near the singularity, you would experience a tremendous gravitational pull if you were falling feet first, which is sort of the prototypical way that physicists love to describe this. The pull of the center on your feet would be so large compared to the pull on your head just because your feet are closer that you'd be stretched. Ultimately, you'd be stretched, and the stretching force ultimately would be larger than the forces holding your body together, and you'd be snapped and snapped, and you would dissolve into your constituent particles. So that is one feature of the singularity. Even though I can't tell you what it is, I can tell you some features about it. Perhaps another element of black hole physics that's worth emphasizing surrounding the singularity is when you study the math of general relativity, it tells you that when you go over the edge of the black hole, something else strange happens. The roles of space and time kind of interchange. So whereas in your mind, you might think that once you go over the edge, you're traveling through space to the center, which is some location in space, 
A better way of really thinking about it is you're moving through time toward the center of the black hole, which is a moment in time. So just as you can't avoid going to the next second, the next second, and the next second, you are relentlessly dragged forward in time, you're dragged forward toward the center of the black hole in exactly the same way, for exactly the same reason. You're actually moving through time toward the center of this black hole. And when you get there, it's a moment in time which you can't go beyond. That's what we call the end of time. So roughly speaking, in this language, which we don't completely understand because the math goes haywire, the singularity would be the end of time. <sighs> okay. Now you've got my head spinning. You're saying you're not moving through space. You're moving through time. We're moving through time right now, you and I. Yes. So how is it any different from the way we're moving through time right now? It, it's, it's not much different. The only difference is we think that there's no moment in time that we're about to kind of slam into beyond which we won't be able to travel in the time direction. The only difference with a black hole is it does have this stop sign at a particular moment, and beyond that, there doesn't seem to be, at least in the classical laws, any further time. Uh -huh. Now, is this singularity, um, it's often likened to that thing that uh, hypothetically existed at the dawn of time, right before the Big Bang, bang took place. Sort of like a reverse of it in some sense. Mm -hmm. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes. It's a, it's a point, though. Is it a point like we learn about in geometry with no dimensions at all? Uh, well, so there are a couple of things that are worth emphasizing there. The the black hole singularity can be thought of in that language. That That's perfectly fine. The Big Bang singularity need not be a point. Although we always think about the universe's beginning as this point, if the universe is infinite in space today, then when the universe was half as big, it would be half of infinity big, which would still be infinity. Mm -hmm. And it was a tenth of its size. It would be a tenth of infinity. So as you can see, as you go back to the beginning... It's not that the universe becomes finite in size. It's always infinite. It's just that everything in space gets closer and closer together. So you have this highly densely packed matter everywhere in the whole infinite expanse of space. But the Big Bang, in that particular example of an infinite universe, would be happening everywhere, some infinity as opposed to at a single point. I see. I, I've often heard that, that, that time and space were created at the moment of the Big Bang. And before that, it doesn't make sense to talk about space. And therefore, dimensions, infinity, infinite space doesn't make any sense. Well, and, and that's true. So we'll always run up in this kind of conversation with the problem that the classical ideas break down mm. at the center of a black hole at the moment of the Big Bang, which are the key motivations for string theory, for instance. Mm -hmm. That's what we always say. String theory needs to be developed because we want to understand the Big Bang and black holes. That's, that's the main motivation. So yes, we'll always run into that. So a little bit more precisely, what I mean is a split second after the beginning... When the math does make sense, the universe would be infinite in size as opposed to infinitesimal in size. Now, that's the grand expanse of the entire cosmos, the part that any observer, they couldn't really exist then, but the part that any observer would have direct access to would be small. But in your mind's eye, if you're thinking about the expanse of reality happens to be the title of my next book, but, uh, which is not a plug, so you need to cut that out of the interview, um, it would be infinite. Uh -huh. uh, infinite, but crowded. Infinite, but crowded. And getting back to the singularity at the center of a black hole, that's where all the matter is. Is that right? Yes, that's where all of the matter that fell in is. You know, the it's all canonical, packed in there. Yeah, the canonical example is, you know, a star exhausts its nuclear fuel, it collapses in on itself, and the part of the star that doesn't get blown out in that process would be in some sense there if you ask me but 
you know, paint a picture for me of what it means to be there, that's where I'm hard-pressed to find even words. Everything is squashed together to, you know, I hate to use the word, but infinite density or almost infinite density before the new laws of physics that take over come into play. So it's pretty extreme. What is this matter like? I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> That's the, I don't know. I know there, there's no real way that we can talk about it until we have a well-defined and thoroughly understood theory that I think melds together quantum mechanics and general relativity. I think string theory is heading that way. You know, people are using the techniques of string theory to gain some insight into this question. People have put forward descriptions. I don't feel that they're developed yet enough to say that that is what happens mm -hmm. down there, but progress is being made. Okay. But it would probably be wrong, it would probably be wrong to think of that matter as just like uh, elementary particles, but squashed next to each other. A whole bunch of them like ping pong balls packed into yeah, a box. Yeah, it's, it's the next to each other part that, that gets hard. <laughs> but, you know, there are some physicists who have come to a conclusion that maybe black holes are best described as sort of fuzzy objects mm -hmm. as opposed to these, you know, dense point-like singularities, and, and that might be the right language. You know, work that I did a long time ago showed that in certain situations you can watch, theoretically, in the mathematics, a black hole slowly morph into a single elementary particle and back again. And a single... Very massive elementary particle. Well, the process that we were describing was one in which the black hole is shedding its mass as it's going through the transition. So it wouldn't be a necessarily very massive elementary particle that would turn into. But the nice thing was in the math, we could literally see without encountering any of these singularities, a very smooth mathematical transition, a particle turn into a black hole and back again, which is an old idea along the lines of what you're saying, that black holes might really be, in some sense, elementary particles. Here, at least in a very controlled, but contrived, but controlled scenario, we could actually see that happen uh -huh. directly. Uh -huh. And I want to let listeners know that this is the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, and I'm speaking today to theoretical physicist Brian Green. We're talking about the physics of black holes. Now, when most people talk about and describe black holes in the um, in non-physics circles, I think they're they're thinking of them classically. That is, you know, along the lines that Isaac Newton might have recognized: massive object exerts a gravitational pull on everything around it, including light. Nothing can escape once it gets close enough to uh, to uh, cross this point of no return. Now, that's not exactly right. I mean, that's a few hundred years out of date. Uh, Einstein changed all that in the early 20th century with general relativity, which described uh, gravity as an effect on the geometry of space by mass. Massive things change the geometry of space, bend space. When there's no mass around, space is kind of flat, like we all, I think, in our everyday lives envision it. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And when there's mass, space begins to curve. Yes. So, so given that, how would you describe the uh, event horizon around a black hole? Is that the point where space begins to curve in on itself? Yeah, you know, we draw these pictures. You, you've probably seen them of a black hole. They're, they're imperfect, but they do involve space taking on a very long throat, if you will. Like a funnel. Like a funnel, that's right. And the edge or the horizon of the black hole 
is a point, well, it's a circle, if you will, in these two-dimensional drawings. It's a sphere in, in a th real three-dimensional setting. And the, again, the idea is that's the point where the curvature of space-time is so severe that once you cross over, you can't come out. And what does that really mean in the geometrical context? Well, we like to think about the world in terms of what are called light cones. It's a slightly technical idea, but it's just the path, the trajectory that light would take from any given point in space. And the trajectories, when you cross over the event horizon, all point into the black hole rather than being able to escape out of the black hole. Mm -hmm. So that's the effect of this curvature to draw anything because, again, once light can't escape, nothing can as well. It draws even light down into the funnel. Mm -hmm. Now, um, you just said the, the magic word space-time. A lot of us think of space and we don't talk about time that much or we talk about them separately, but... Einstein described them as being part of sort of a unitary matrix that we're all embedded in. Yes, that's exactly right. So anything that like mass that's going to change space is also going to change time. Yeah, and it's, in fact, it's even worth emphasizing as long as you brought that up. You know, if people are familiar with general relativity's pictorial representations, I use them all the time, for instance, you know, where we imagine we have the sun, the fabric of space is kind of gently warping around it and not as severe a funnel as you would have for a black hole, but something along those lines. And then we try using those pictures to convince people that the new picture of general relativity is that the Earth is sort of rolling along a valley in this funnel shape that the... Like circling a basketball. Like circling a, that's exactly right. And there are a lot of problems with that particular picture, but the one that's relevant for the conversation here is the reason why the Earth goes around the sun in general relativity is not so much that space is curved, but it's that time is curved, mm -hmm. which is um, a hard idea to communicate, and that's why these pictures focus on the easier notion that it's really space that's curved, but more precisely, it's time. Well, you hit on that in your most recent book. Yes. It's, it's a kid's story in a way, Icarus at the Edge of Time. Yep. And uh, I don't want to give it away. Sure. I don't, right? We don't yeah, we don't want to give away the ending. That's well, right. we don't. But we do have a character named Icarus. Yes. He's in a spaceship, and the spaceship is coming near a black hole. He decides to um, explore the black hole. Against his father's warning, of just course. like in the original. That's right. Although he didn't call his father Daedalus for some reason. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and what he experiences as a result is an effect on time. Yeah. So... Um, Help us understand this as you approach this event horizon, as you get to the event horizon. What happens to time? Well, it's very hard to describe why it happens, but let me just say the effect first. When you get very near a black hole, time for you slows down relative to somebody who is far away. And in fact, this is not only true with black holes, it's, it's true in any gravitational setting. You know, if you're at the top of the Empire State Building and somebody is on the ground, you are experiencing less gravity than they are because you're farther from the Earth, farther from the center of the Earth. And what Einstein taught us is your watch will tick more quickly because you're experiencing less gravity than the person on the ground who's experiencing more gravity. Their clock will tick slowly. Again, it's by comparison. The individual watching their watch will not notice anything. Their brain processes are going at exactly the same slowdown or speed up as their watches, so mm -hmm. they don't notice anything. It's only by comparison. Mm -hmm. and, and in truth, each of us, uh, unless we're joined at the hip, is, is essentially living to a different clock. Yes, time. time is shattered once yeah. Einstein comes on the scene. You, you know, Newton had this universal notion of time that, in essence, there was some grand cosmic timekeeper that was governing how time elapses for all of us. But Einstein showed that if you move, time for you runs at a different rate compared to people who are not moving. 
And if you're feeling gravity, time for you moves at a different rate from those feeling different gravity. So time becomes a very personal experience, if you will, in relativity, both special and general relativity. Black holes accentuate this. So, of course, when gravity is really strong, as it is with a black hole, these effects become pumped up. So if you hang out near the edge of a black hole for a while and then you return from whence you came, you will find that a lot of time has elapsed from where you started compared to what elapsed on your own clock because the black holes slow down your passage through time dramatically. Now, this sounds a lot like that famous twins paradox that Einstein himself, I think, thought up when he came up with special relativity. Yeah. The idea that if you travel really, really fast, your clock slows down relative to someone who's not traveling as fast. Yes. Um, In fact, they're the same. Are they the same? And how are they the same? How is gravity like traveling really fast? Yeah. Well, when you study the so-called twin paradox of special relativity, the one that you're referring to, which is, you know, two twins are born on Earth. One takes a ship, goes out into space, goes really fast, turns around and comes back. Emphasize that you said takes a ship. A ship, yes. Yeah. So it takes a ship, goes out in space, comes back, um, steps out of the ship and notices that the twin has aged considerably compared to the amount of aging that he or she has experienced. When you actually follow the math of that, you find that the difference in aging happens almost entirely when the first twin who's in the ship is at the turnaround point in his or her journey. It's at that turnaround point. Now, when you're in that turnaround point, you can actually feel your body being pushed against the side of the ship as it's churning around. And Einstein taught us that that feeling is actually equivalent to the feeling of gravity. If you close your eyes, you close all the windows of the ship, and you just feel that sensation as you're turning around, it's equivalent to the sensation you'd feel if there's a big planet pulling on you, but the ship is keeping you from falling down. Mm-hmm. And in essence, that strong gravity you're feeling is the same strong gravity that you'd be feeling, say, near the edge of a black hole, causing your time to slow down compared to somebody else's. Now, you have said, and I think others have said, um, and you said this in um, uh, The Fabric of the Cosmos, that in some sense, we are all traveling at the speed of light yes. through space time. Yes. I mean, in some cases, it appears as though we're traveling very fast in space. In other cases, we're not traveling so fast in space like you and I sitting here right now, but we are traveling at the speed of light through time or near the speed of light through time, if that makes any sense. Yes. You know, this is a very, very simple realization that I came to. Frankly, I hadn't really thought of it until writing The Elegant Universe when I was trying to explain special relativity. And, you know, a very simple manipulation of the math of special relativity that, you know, any somebody in eighth grade could do shows you that there's an alternate way of thinking about these ideas, which is the one that you're describing, that we can ascribe in some sense a motion through space-time and a speed to that motion through space-time, and that is equal to the speed of light. And when we are sitting down, all of that motion is being used by motion through time, since we're not moving through space. But if we get up and start to walk, we divert some of that motion through time into motion through space, so our motion through time slows. Mm -hmm. So that's one very quick way of understanding Einstein's insight, that when we move through space, our clock ticks more slowly. It ticks more slowly because we're using up some of the previous motion through time and diverting it into motion through space. Um, An analogy, if I'm heading north on the freeway and then I veer off in a westerly direction, I've diverted 
my motion away from the northern axis into the east-west axis. Precisely. Same thing we can do by veering off into time or into space with our yep. constant motion. With, with the one difference that needs emphasis, in the car, in principle, you could put your foot on the accelerator <laughs> and change your speed. Where we're talking about here is you're moving at the speed of light through space-time. You can't go any faster. So once you divert some motion through time into motion through space, you can't pick it up through time. You necessarily move through time more slowly. Right. Now, now you know, I, when I asked that question, I said, you and I guess others, because I was assuming you were the first person I ever heard say that. And I was assuming that you weren't the first person ever to say that, were you? Because it's I such an saw, amazing... I, I uh, never saw it anywhere else. Wow. No, no doubt everything has been said before. <laughs> well, it's such... I mean, it's such a powerful yeah. uh, way of understanding it that uh, it's kind of amazing to me that... Uh, yeah. And Einstein simply and, taking a simple equation and putting one term on the other side. Yeah. That's, that's all it is. It seems it, like know. it would yield um, more insights and not just be some sort of trivial way of visualizing things. Um, that's harder to to know. Okay. But certainly in terms of, you know, the whole awkwardness of special relativity is that time and space are not exactly treated on equal footing. One has a minus sign in it. But you see, a minus sign on one side of the equation becomes a plus side on the other side of the equation. And that's all that this actually amounts to. And when you put it on the other side, all of these things are plus signs and you can use familiar intuition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're saying that space has a minus sign and time doesn't. Relative you can't go to backwards. Time. Well, no, it's um, when we measure distances in space-time. We measure distance in space, we know what that means. You, know, you add this distance, that distance, yes. you know. But with time, it actually subtracts from distances in space. Oh, but it's a formalism. It's a formalism that can be then turned into the traditional formalism just by rearranging things right. on the other side of the equal sign. And then you can just use intuition. You know, this is the idea that you gave... You know, which is the the good one that when you're driving and you go to the east, you divert something from the north. You are intuitively using this very notion that if you take a little away from here, you mm. definitely go less mm. here. In space time, that kind of reasoning doesn't work unless you rearrange things in the manner that implicitly is behind the statements that we're making. Right, yeah. right. And we'll be back with more from physicist Brian Greene in just a moment. I'm Robert Polly, and this is the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. Central Coast Energy Services offers weatherization services to eligible low-income residents in Santa Cruz, Monterey, San Benito, and South Santa Clara counties. Money-saving services include a refrigerator replacement program, window and door replacement, weather stripping, CFLs, and much more. Please call Central Coast Energy Services at 1-888-728-3637 for an application. Now let's get back to our conversation with theoretical physicist Brian Green. It's part one of our two-part series this week and the next on black holes and how they've shaken our understanding of reality. Tell me about black holes as they relate to the principle of entropy. And and first, let's get a a good little definition of entropy out here. Well, entropy is an idea that I think a lot of people find confusing. But in some sense, it's really a measure of the amount of disorder in a system. What does that mean? Well, you know, if I have an egg on a table, it's nice and pristine, completely ordered. And that is a state of relatively low entropy. But then I let it roll off the table, it goes splatter all over the floor... 
molecules flying this way and that, that's a less ordered, a more disordered state, a higher entropy state. Now, is there a way of giving a, a definition that isn't sort of subjective? I mean, the way you described it, I could say, well, you know, one man's order is another man's disorder. Yes. There is a way to actually make it quantitative, which is to ask yourself, how many rearrangements of the parts can I undertake without affecting the overall macroscopic appearance of the system? A hmm. real good example is the air in this room. So the air in this room is all spread out, and if I were to take a whole bunch of molecules from one corner and put them in the other and exchange them and move them around, it would still be all disordered and spread out. There'd be no effect on the macroscopic distribution of the air molecules. On the other hand, if I now take all that air and I put it all in a little tiny bottle, now if I take a few molecules out and spread them around the room, it does make a big difference because now there's a real macroscopic distinction previous to what we had before. That word macroscopic sounds a little slippery to me. Yeah, so there's always some <laughs> level of so-called, it's called coarse graining is our yeah. fancy name for it, but there always is some level of macroscopic averaging mm -hmm. that needs to come into the story to actually make sense of it. And that's because this whole subject, thermodynamics, its whole goal is to go against studying the motion of every single molecule in a system because it's just too hard to do and try to find rigorous physical laws that speak more directly to the things that we can see on large scales, mm -hmm. like the temperature and the pressure and the volume. And that's why those kinds of macroscopic words seep into the story. Okay. So how does this notion of disorder that you just described, entropy, relate to black holes. Yeah. Let me just put out a straw man here. Sure. My thought would be just as if you took all of the molecules of air in this room and you put them into a box so that they were all unable to move, that would be low entropy. That would be an exact state, you know, without mm -hmm. any disorder at all. Everything would be in its place and couldn't move. Right. Isn't a black hole the same right. thing? Right, so you take that to its logical extreme and it leads you to believe that black holes shouldn't have any entropy at all. Mm -hmm. Many people thought that way until... A guy named Jack, Jacob Beckenstein was thinking about this some time ago, 70s. And he was puzzling with the second law of thermodynamics, which is a feature of entropy that says that entropy almost always increases toward the future. And that's a very easy statement to understand. There's so many more ways that something can be disordered than it can be ordered so that if a system is evolving in some way, it's extraordinarily likely that it's going to go toward one of those many, many, many disordered states. Very unlikely that it will go toward one of the ordered ones. You, know, you take a sheaf of papers, you throw it up in the air. Could it land in a nice orderly stack? Yeah, it could. But you're going to have to throw it a heck of a lot of times in order to have a chance of that really happening. It's much more likely to land all disordered. And, and by the way, if I intervene and stack those papers nice and neatly, decreasing the entropy of that stack of papers... That's always offset by some increase in disorder around me. I've yeah, you're, you're, you've used up some of the uh, fat molecules in your body to exert the force on the pages. That created some heat. The heat made the air molecules around your body move more quickly. And you take all that into account. Indeed, you've created more disorder net, even though the pages themselves look more ordered. So Beckinson was asking himself the following question. If entropy more or less always increases... What if I throw some very, very disordered object into a black hole? Well, you know, if a black hole is, as you say, this place where there's no entropy, everything gets crushed to the center and you know, there's no even capacity for holding on to any disorder, it would seem as though black holes were these wonderful 
trash cans in which I can continually throw disorder and get rid of it and that way have a very systematic way of making the world around us outside the black hole more ordered. That was puzzling because you're not supposed to be able to do that. And when he thought about this long and hard, came to the conclusion that black holes must therefore actually have disorder. And he and, and then Hawking, you know, they came to the conclusion that the amount of disorder, strangely, is governed by the size of the surface area of the black hole. So the surface area of the black hole becomes a new reservoir for holding on to disorder, for holding on to entropy. You're going to have to explain that. The surface area. Yeah, why the surface area? Um, it's, um, it's a puzzling idea that we're, we're still coming to grips with, I'd say. Uh, but what you basically learn is that if you want to account, if you want to make the second law of thermodynamics work, for example, how would it work? Well, you want somehow when you throw disorder into the black hole, the black hole to respond in some way that reflects that it's now embodying the disorder mm -hmm. that you dumped into it. And when you look at it in detail, you find that in order for the black hole to accommodate this entropy, it must grow in size. You know, it's taken in some more matter, taken in more entropy, it must grow in size. And the increase in the area of the black hole in the appropriate units exactly equals the amount of disorder that you threw in. And you're like, aha, it must be that the disorder is somehow going to the area because that's what is able to hold on to just the right amount to account for what I threw in, making the world happy and safe again for the second law of thermodynamics. Okay, and by area, you don't mean the area of the singularity, which is, you know, infinitesimally small. No, I mean the area of the event horizon. Event horizon. So when we sort of in our mind think about the area of a black hole, it's that area of that surface surrounding the singularity such that, you know, if you cross it, you can't get back out. So the area increases and the disorder in that area, represented yeah, by that area. That's right. You should really think about the area as tantamount to the amount of entropy that the black hole can hold on to. And in a way, it makes perfect sense because if you're far away from a black hole and you throw in something toward the black hole, whatever, you know, uh, food, chopsticks, whatever, encyclopedia, as it goes toward the black hole, as you're watching it, remember we described before how time for anything going toward a black hole slows down. So if you're watching that stuff go toward a black hole, you watch it get closer and closer and closer to the black hole, but because time is slowing down, you don't actually ever see it cross over the edge of a black hole. So from your distant perspective, it's as if all this stuff is getting plastered on the outside of a black hole, and therefore it makes perfect sense that if the black hole is to hold on to the disorder of the stuff you threw in, it will be captured by what's happening at the surface. So it all uh -huh. holds together very tightly. Uh huh. And what you would see is this, you would see things, um, would you see things sort of stuck to the surface as though we were throwing, I don't know, eggs at the wall or something? Well, <laughs> again, see in quotation marks, you know, Indeed, because yeah. you know, these things become, the light from them becomes infinitely redshifted, so they get to a point where you can't literally actually see them. But in your mind's eye, yeah, you can sort of think about these things as being plastered around the outside, and that's where they sort of are. But now, not, again, if not you're riding... Not the mass, though. Not the mass. Well, that's the thing. So if you're riding along with this encyclopedia as it falls in, you know, from your perspective, time is elapsing as always, and you fall over the edge. So you and the encyclopedia do fall over the edge and do go in toward the singularity. That's perspective number one. 
Perspective number two from infinitely far away is watching this, and you don't actually do that. It's not that one, you know, you hover at the edge of the black hole, at the event horizon. And it's not that one perspective is right and one is wrong. I mean, what we've learned from relativity is you can have perspectives that seem to be conflicting. In reality, they're not. They're just different. And collectively, they paint a full picture of the reality. Uh-huh. So is it fair to say the sun does go around the Earth? I think that's a perfectly fine way of talking about things. It's just not a very economical or efficient way of talking about them. So, I, I, you know, it does bug me a little bit, although I never talk about this in public, when people say, you know, oh, you know, they thought the sun went around the Earth. I'm like, well, it does go around it's the Earth. It's always bugged me, too. It does yeah. go around the Earth. Yeah. It's just not, you know, there's a, there's a more efficient way of thinking about it that simplifies the description. But if you're not into simplification, you know, I'm standing here and by God, I see the sun going around the Earth, and that's a perfectly valid perspective. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, one big way of characterizing mo- modern physics is to say that no perspective has a privileged position that's anymore. That's right. That's right. And so you physicists are worse than economists now. I mean, everything's possible. On one hand, on the other hand. Well, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. Uh, and, you know, and I know they're only joking, but just, you know, each of these perspectives has a different outlook, but they all fit into one single logically consistent whole. Mm -hmm. So it's not willy-nilly things are, you know, take whatever relativistic perspective you want and you can see anything you want. It's not like that. They all fit into one coherent picture. And the way they fit into that picture is so impressive because things that at first sight might seem incompatible are fully compatible if you've done things correctly. Right, right. And you're listening to the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, and the topic today is black holes. I'm talking to the physicist Brian Green. When we talk about everything falling into the black hole, at least from one perspective, ending up sort of smeared onto the event horizon and going no further, is that how we perceive the mass, or or is the mass somehow distinct from the quote-unquote information? Uh, well... The the black hole, you know, if you throw, you know, 10 kilogram weight into a black hole, the black hole increases its total mass by, you know, that 10 kilogram. And when we typically talk about the mass of a black hole, we're talking about how does its gravity affect us? And whether that mass, if you want to think of it as being smeared on the outside or deep inside the center, the gravitational pull outside would be the same. Outside. Outside. So again, it's, uh, you know, a matter of interpretation, a matter of perspective. Certainly from the perspective of, say, the black hole, you know, you're riding the wave and going in with the black hole, you know, that material will be squashed together in the center. So it's, again, two different ways of thinking about the same reality. They're compatible. And in this little example, you can see they're compatible by virtue of the gravitational pull they'll exert on you. Mm -hmm. just doesn't matter where you sort of think about this residing. Was there a moment in your development as a scientist, maybe as a a kid becoming a scientist, when you became comfortable with that idea that two seemingly inconsistent descriptions of reality were both right, just from different perspectives? You know, when I was very young, I think... Perhaps unwittingly, my dad prepared me for this kind of thing. We used to play this game, maybe others do it too, I don't know, where we'd walk down the streets of Manhattan and each of us would talk about something that we quote-unquote were seeing, but we were seeing it from an imaginary perspective that we were making up. You know, I remember one, you know, my dad would say, you know, I'm, I'm walking along a, a brown log when these white tendrils dripping with water are placed on top of me. It was like, what is that? And it's the perspective of an ant walking on a hot dog as a hot dog man is putting on the sauerkraut. 
So constantly we were playing this game where we'd be changing perspective. And I don't know, perhaps that helped me when I came to grips with these ideas later on, because again, it's a matter of seeing things from a different point of view. Yeah, it is. It is. It's so interesting. Um, when I read uh, accounts of theoretical physics these days, uh, really cutting-edge physics, I see a word that I don't think I encountered all that much when I first started reading about physics a few decades ago. That is information. I mean, when I took physics, I don't recall anyone even talking about information. Information was something that computer scientists talk about. Yeah? Information theory. All about manipulating bits inside computers. Now I hear physicists talking about information all the time. But information, that's an abstraction, isn't it? I mean, aren't physicists concerned with particles and energy and mass and gravitation, real physical things? Yes. I mean, for us, oftentimes, information is, is used as a shorthand for the exact state of any given system. And when we talk about, you know, is information lost, we're asking ourselves, you know, if you know what the state is at a given moment, can you use that information about the system to be able to predict what the system will be like in the future or what the system was like in the past. And if you can do that, that makes us happy because that means that the information in some sense is preserved, it's conserved. You haven't lost any information. You can go from here to then or from here to some point into the future. The problems that arose when studying black hole physics early on was the suggestion that maybe information was lost in the sense that you might be able to know the state now, but you won't be able to know the state later or before if a black hole intervenes because it can grab hold of some of the information and not yield it back to you. But what might sound strange to some people is a, a, a scientist, a physicist talking about his own state of knowledge as being itself a physical principle. Wait, isn't that a statement more about you physicists than it is about the world out there? It, it would be if we weren't taking into account that we are imagining an absolutely omniscient physicist who understands the state completely. And then the information content is sort of a shorthand for what kind of data it would take to delineate the system with that kind of total precision. But more to your point, I would say that there has been a bit of a shift in physics where people are thinking about the universe sometimes, not always, sometimes as if it were a computer that's going from the state of the universe at one moment of time and evolving it to the state at another time. And the rise of computers presumably has allowed us to bring this metaphor more comfortably into the language. And some people want to think about what are the laws of physics. The laws of physics are simply a gadget which takes the information content of the universe, which is the state of the universe at one point, and evolves it to the information content, the state of the universe at a future point. Some even take that further and think that that's all that happens in yeah, the dynamics. Some no longer call it a metaphor at all. Yeah, some would want to say that's really the dynamics of the universe. It's just an information conduit going from information at one time to information at another time. And information is what's real, and um, oh, things like elementary particles are our representation of the information rather than the other way around? That's right. It's, a, it's an unusual way of thinking about things. It's pretty equivalent. It's almost, um, you can set up a dictionary between those two kinds of languages, but sometimes by changing language, you can get insights that the original language would have made opaque. Do you think of it that way? Do you think in sometimes, information Sometimes I do. I mean, certainly in these black hole issues, it helps you to understand the puzzles and it helps you to understand the resolution to think in this language. And I think going forward, it's going to play an even more important role. Great. Brian, one last question. Um, 
the uh, Large Hadron Collider, the LHC, this huge particle accelerator that just uh, went online uh, in Switzerland and France. It actually uh, straddles the border between the two countries. And a lot of people think it's going to open up a whole new world of insight in um, fundamental physics. You are a string theorist. Is there anything that the Large Hadron Collider might show us that would be meaningful to you as a string theorist? Well, as a string theorist, I also care about particle physics more generally. So almost anything that the Large Hadron Collider will find will be spectacularly interesting to me and to string theoretic colleagues. You know, the the more traditional or the less exotic things that we can imagine it finding are things like the Higgs particle, mm-hmm. which is this particle proposed some 44 years ago that is intrinsic to our understanding of why particles have mass. That is a good chance we'll find that. Finding supersymmetry, that's the actually super and super strings means supersymmetry. That requires the existence of a class of particles that no one yet has seen. I think there's a good chance we'll find those. Either of those insights, those discoveries would be truly wonderful. The more exotic long shot possibilities that we are looking for are perhaps to find the extra dimensions that string theory requires. There's a chance that in highly energetic collisions, debris will be kind of ejected out of our dimensions and in rough language crammed into the others, something that we would notice by the lack of energy conservation in our dimensions Mm. because those debris, that debris would carry energy away with it. So we'll be looking for missing energy signatures of possibly extra dimensions. And as we mentioned before, you know, the formation of microscopic black holes is an idea that comes really from string theory. And in fact, this idea of extra dimensions plays a role too. And if we find microscopic black holes, no cause for concern whatsoever, (laughs) but a spectacular opportunity to, as we were discussing earlier on, study the most extreme form of matter in a laboratory setting. And that's bound to give fantastic insights. So there are some findings that would um, lend a little bit of credence, a little bit more credence to string theory. Yeah. There's there's not a lot that could come out of the LHC that would disprove string theory. There's nothing there? that can come out. Let's be real clear. There's nothing that can come out, I, I can't imagine, that would disprove string theory. And I don't say that from a defensive posture. I say that from, I wish that there was something where I could say, if it doesn't find this, string theory is wrong. There's a somewhat strange attitude that has at least taken hold of a few people out there, that string theorists are somehow happy that the theory is difficult to test. You know, I already have job security. You know, I've got tenure. My goal now is to work on the right thing. I want to find out what the true nature of the universe is. And if string theory is not right, I want to know it today. I wish Mm. I would know it five years ago. Mm. So I would love to be able to say, here's how you prove it right. Here's how you disprove it. And let's just do the experiment and be done with it. We're not at that stage. Everything we've learned about string theory is very, very encouraging gives us real well-grounded hope that this is the unified theory that Einstein was looking for, but we won't know until we actually can confirm it. Now, string theory, as you just said, as you just indicated, has real importance for people who care about theory and who care about the consistency of theory because it could bridge that gap between quantum physics and general relativity. Um, Does it have significance beyond... Uh, things that take place at the tiniest, tiniest scales and things that take place in the mind of physicists. Does it have any significance beyond that? Well, I'm not exactly sure what the question means, but let me just go down a direction (laughs) and you tell me. Can I say it again? Sure. Uh, Since it didn't say it really well. Um, 
now, now, string theory does describe uh, reality at the very smallest scales. And it's also really important to people who care about physics theory because it unifies general relativity described by Einstein and quantum physics um, described by many physicists in the 20th century. Um, but is it important beyond that? I mean, is, does it have a macroscopic real-life implication or, or is it always going to... You know. Well, it might, and the one setting where it might is in cosmology. So I've been focusing my attention for a while now to, to try to see whether string theory might give implications for things that we can observe with telescopes. Now, at first sight, that might seem a fool's errand. As you're saying, you're talking about the smallest things. How can it possibly have an impact on big things? But that's where the universe comes into play. The universe way back at the beginning itself was very small, and then it expanded. And in that expansion, it can draw out the small to the big. An analogy that I like in this regard is, imagine I have a balloon with no air in it, a very fine-tipped pen. I draw a tiny message on it, too small for you to see. But if I then blow air into the balloon, I stretch the surface, my message gets spread out. Now, obviously, you can see it on the surface. Maybe that's true with the universe in the sense that strings are so tiny that they could have left a little tiny imprint on the physics of the early universe. Then the universe expands Billions of years, 14 billion years of cosmic expansion, space stretches, and as it does so, it can stretch out the imprint of string theory all across the sky, as long as you know what to look for. And we've been pursuing the possibility that the cosmic microwave background radiation, heat left over from the Big Bang, might have tiny temperature differences, more than any yet detected, that might fall into a pattern dictated by the physics of quantum mechanics, gravity, and string theory. So this is at least a chance that string theory can be teased out from the micro world and spread out into the macro world. And is that, uh, is that data uh, due to come in anytime soon? Well, it's again a tough question. There are things in string theory that we don't know well enough, and if we're maximally optimistic about the things that we don't understand, then there's a chance that the data, for instance, from the Planck satellite that's coming up might be able to test these things. But if these features of string theory are not as prominent as our maximal optimism takes them, then they'll be beyond the reach of even the upcoming experiments. So it's a similar situation with the Large Hadron Collider. There's a long-shot possibility that these things could be tested, but I consider it unlikely, and this is not surprising. As you say, we're talking about the smallest things that we can even imagine, and therefore they're hard to test. Brian, thank you. Thank you. Brian Green is professor of physics at Columbia University. His most recent book is Icarus at the Edge of Time. He's also the author of The Elegant Universe and the Fabric of the Cosmos. And next week, we're going to continue with uh, black holes as our topic, and it gets even weirder, if you can believe that. I'm going to talk to theoretical physicist Leonard Susskind about something he calls the so-called um, black hole wars. That's the name he's given to a years-long argument between himself and Stephen Hawking. At stake, he says is the whole edifice of quantum physics. It sounds exciting, so I hope you'll tune in. Finally, a footnote on today's show. You heard Brian Green mention the possibility that the uh, giant new particle accelerator near Geneva, Switzerland, known as the Large Hadron Collider, or LHC, could produce microscopic black holes. And you heard him say there's no cause for panic, notwithstanding the uh, sensational news stories and doomsday scenarios kicked around in the media these days. And the reason there is nothing to fear, he says is because, first of all, any uh, black hole produced by the collider would be so small it would quickly evaporate by means of that same Hawking radiation we discussed earlier in the show. And besides, if it is possible, 
for a high-energy particle uh, collision to produce these microscopic black holes. Well, those sorts of collisions take place all the time, all around us, thanks to cosmic rays that have been going on for billions of years, and they have not uh, devoured the Earth at this point. That's why we're still here. I hope you'll be here next Sunday at noon for more on black holes. I'm Robert Polly with the 7th Avenue Project.